Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Good morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for reading his word, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's scripture comes from Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than a hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning. Y'all can go ahead and grab a seat. If you are in Kingdom Kids this morning, this is the time where you guys make your way to your classes. We have preschool over here. If you are in kinder or first or second through fifth grade, uh, your teachers are holding the signs, so gather there. We will miss y'all. Thank you so much for joining us. Parents, if there are any other kids uh, that are going to be staying in, we have clipboards with uh, activity sheet that they can take notes on, color on, uh, however best that would serve you in the connections room. Uh, Clipboards and crayons there. And coffee or tea for you. So, fantastic. Uh, Well, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Rob. And uh, I have the joy of serving here as one of the pastors. Uh, At times, you'll see me, I'll come up here, I sometimes do the welcome, sometimes lead through our prayers of confession and assurance of a pardon, and on occasions like today, I get the joy of opening God's Word with you all. So uh, I have limited notes on the screen behind me, so if you have a Bible, which I hope you do, uh, go ahead, take that out, turn it on, and just open up to Mark, chapter 14. We're going to be there. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, but Mark's going to be where we stay. So if you're a note taker, there'll be some main, there'll be a main idea, there'll be some other things behind me, but uh, let's just focus in on what the Lord has for us today. And uh, before we jump in there, Molly, thank you for reading our text um, for us today, but I want to ask with a question. What's something that you would just spend a silly amount of money on? Seems like an odd statement, odd question, but go with me. Like... You saw something at an auction, online, in person, wherever, and you're like, that's it, I gotta have it. 
may be unfair that I ask you this question when you haven't had much of an on-ramp to think of it. So let me give you some items that have sold at an auction to maybe channel that inspiration. We're coming in hot. There's a grilled cheese with the image of the Virgin Mary. Did that do anything for anyone? Uh, for $28,000, that could have been yours. Staying with the food category here, how about Justin Timberlake's half-eaten French toast? Not as good as the Virgin Mary, but for $1,025, that could have been yours. Um, this one I found astonishing, that someone on eBay paid $3,000 for an imaginary friend. The thing had 31 bids on it, and if anyone who bid on that will ever hear this, come talk to me. I have some oceanfront property in Kansas I would love to sell you. Some fans in here, we have some art fans. Um, recently, there was a display of what's called modern art, which was a banana duct taped to a wall. Um, I don't understand it, but that sold for $120,000. All right, now we're moving into the real stuff here. Michael Jordan, the GOAT. From the 1998 Game 1 NBA Finals, his worn jersey, game-worn jersey. Any guesses here? $10.1 million. As featured in the Last Dance docuseries, very good. Um, so $10.2 million could have netted you that one. Uh, for me, personally, could have gone a lot of routes here. Did a lot of extensive research. And the item of my affection was a prop from the hit TV show, The Office. Dwight Schrute's last Dundee, his promising assistant manager. And if I had $15,000, that could have been mine. <laughs> we'll see what happens, we'll pray. Fast and pray for that one. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, that's just silly. Why would anyone spend that kind of money, waste that kind of money on something so frivolous? That's the right reaction. That's what we should be going for here. And today, the disciples give that reaction to a woman who offers something very costly to herself. And we're going to see why that reaction isn't the appropriate one. But before we get into that, let's pause, let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to be present among us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that your mercies are new every morning. God, be with us now. In the fullness of your spirit, help us see the beauty of the gospel today. Show us our need for you and how Jesus meets that need. And let us live in light of the cross. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so main idea. This is where we're going. If you don't get anything else, this is what I want you to leave with. Jesus is either the object of our affection or the obstacle to our ambition. Jesus is either the object of our affection or the obstacle to our ambition. Now, as you see in our text, we kind of just have three chunks, and which form what we call a, what we've referenced in Mark, called a Mark and sandwich. So you have the, the bread, the beginning and the end, which forms the the bread of the sandwich, and that's kind of the main story. And then the middle verses are inserted this story that seems kind of odd in its placement, but I think is really beautiful. So we're going to feast on that. We got to get to some bread first. And so the opening slice of bread is the religious rage. So let's look at the first two verses. 
It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, the religious leaders in this time were very open to Jesus at the beginning. They started hearing about the Messiah has come. And for them, that meant that there would be political gain, that Jerusalem would now overthrow Rome and that they would be big, important people. And when Jesus didn't deliver on those expectations, they started to not like what he was about because he started revealing some wicked intentions, their heart. In this narrative, we have already seen Jesus has come on this triumphal entry and he tells parables and these religious leaders start to see that they are the bad guys in these parables. To draw your attention, a few chapters before this, Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants about a master who buys a vineyard and plants crops, digs a hole for the wine press, puts a tower in the middle of it, protects it with a fence, and then puts these tenants in there to steward the resources that he's given. The master goes away. And these tenants are like, hey, this, we got a pretty sweet deal. We can go ahead and help ourselves to all of this because the master's gone. Well, the master starts sending other servants to go get some of the produce of the land. And they're like, nah, this is ours. You need to get out of here. So they beat them multiple times. Servants come and they walk away bruised and bloody. Finally, this last one comes and they kill him. And the master sends instead his son thinking they'll respect him. And instead, as they see him approach, the tenants say to one another, look, here's the heir. If we kill him, all of this can be ours for our inheritance. It's a bit on the nose. And at the end of that section, they actually grasp what Jesus is even saying. This is Mark 12, 12. And they, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Bingo. So they left him and went on their way. So, so filled with this rage of this ambition that they're seeking for themselves that it blinds them to what's happening here. They agree with cultural Swedish commentator Greta Thunberg and how dare you. That was a great impression. <laughs> so they channel this, this, this rage. And what's even more stark here with the irony, did anyone catch the setting? It's two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a time when Tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims would ascend from various locations to Jerusalem. Some estimates even put it as high as 300,000 people would flock to this city to remember their time in Egypt, the enslavery to Pharaoh, and how God sent this angel of death, and they would pass over them if their house was covered by the blood of the lamb. And then in haste, when they didn't have time for their bread to rise, they would make their way through the exodus, out of slavery, into freedom and communion with God. This is what the re religious leaders should have been focusing on. And instead, they're worried about the temple. They're worried about if this one function that all of these people are coming to, if this gets destroyed, which Jesus has said time and time again, Pastor Ian did a great job last week talking about chapter 13 on how Jesus and what he was going to do, the, the beauty of the gospel and breaking that thing down, 
to allow a wider access to communion with the Father. Instead of realizing what God was doing to tabernacle among us in Jesus, the Passover lamb that was right before them, they seek to steal, kill, and destroy, which sounds a lot like the adversary and how he's described. So their ambition for glory, their ambition for significance, Jesus is an obstacle to that, and he has to be done away with. Now we move to the next set of verses, Jesus being anointed at Bethany. Let's look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Let's pause. Simon the leper right now is the only person named in this event right here. And we're going to get to why that is in a second. But first, I think there is something here about the guest list. And if you look at this parallel account in the other Gospels, we know that there are certain people. So first, let's start with Simon the leper. And so Simon was a common name, and so we needed something to distinguish them from one another. And oftentimes, there was something like Simon the Tanner, Simon Peter, or in this instance, Simon the leper. Now, it's safe to conclude that he wasn't a current leper because the Old Testament law required that lepers be in a colony outside the camp, and he yet has a house that he's hosting people in. So at some point in Jesus' earthly ministry, this man was healed by the affectionate touch of the Savior. And in turn, he offers his house up for this gathering. And then, if we continue reading, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Now, this woman, most people would assume, and the Gospel of John supports, that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He was once dead. Now he's not anymore. And um, Martha is along with them. So this sibling group, hosted by someone else who Jesus had touched in a very personal way in the ministry, are sitting at this table with him. The men reclining, Martha serving as Martha does, and Mary kind of in the background, taking it all in. Jesus is at the center of attention. And I can only imagine the conversations they were having. Lazarus is probably retelling his story. Hey, Jesus, remember that time when I was dead and you, you hit that with the Uno reverse and now here I am? You have Simon, who's probably like, hey, Jesus, remember that time I was a leper and no one would touch me, but you moved close and you did? He's probably, you know, subtly hoping for one of those classic Old Testament name changes to something more distinguished like Simon the Great, maybe even Simon the Pretty Good. Right now, anything's better than Simon the leper. But the beauty of that is because it tells the story of meeting Jesus. So Jesus here at the center of attention. And now we move to Mary. And with Mary coming in, Jesus moves from simply the center of attention to the object of affection. What does she do? She's prompted but what I can only conclude to be the Holy Spirit to take this precious flask of ointment and to anoint Jesus with it. Verse 3 says, the end of verse 3, this was of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over 
his head. Now, some commentators would speculate that this flask of pure nard was potentially uh, an inheritance that she had received, maybe even a dowry for her future spouse's family that she would give in response to her hand in marriage. Regardless of either of those options, what we understand is this bottle represented her security, her future. And seeing Jesus as the object of her affection, there is only one response. That's to offer it to him. But she doesn't hedge her bets on this one. She could have very easily just opened the thing, take the top off, give a little oil on the head, and then put the top back on, save some of this. We see it was 300 denarii worth of oil, roughly a year's worth of wages. Some estimates are $40,000. But she breaks it, rendering it no longer can she go back because this is a wholly devoted item as unto the Lord. Just an amazing scene. But then we kind of get this whiplash here as we're moved from this amazing moment to some grumbling amongst the disciples. Look at verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. What an amazing juxtaposition these verses are. And while unnamed here, just the disciples, when, again, read the parallel accounts and you see the person who started this was Judas. So the grumbling kind of takes place. They're, they're standing back, they're watching all this, and it says they say to themselves, and I can see like, can you believe this gal? Look what she did. And then like wildfire, the selfishness of what's going on. They start to grumble. They become indignant with this action. You see, the disciples have been with Jesus for three years. They've seen Jesus do incredible things and people respond in incredible ways. And I can't help but think that maybe after being with him, they kind of want to share in some of that glory. You see, not too long ago, uh, two of his disciples asked to sit at his right and left hands in the kingdom. Judas was with them, but he really wasn't with them. We'll close with that. Peter misses it often seeking security. And so I think they're confronted with, we, we don't have affection for Jesus like she does. So where do you go? You go to your own glory. Go to your own ambition. Could this not have been sold for this amount of money? They're not wrong. It could have. And if it was sold and then given to Jesus, that goes to the disciples to distribute. And guess what happens when you show up to the folks who are needy with cash? You start to get some praise. You start to get some compliments. You start to get some dinner invites. And man, for them, that's going to feel good. But Jesus, not only as Mary's redeemer, he's her defender. Look at this. Verse 6. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. For truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done for me will be told in memory of her. Wow. 
such care, such personal relationship that Jesus shares here and the way he defends her. Now, we're going to chase a rabbit just for a minute, and it's going to connect, I promise. If you have had any type of conversation with me in the last couple months, you've heard me recommend a book, and I'm going to recommend it here today from the pulpit. Um, it's called Rembrandt's In the Wind by Russ Ramsey. I think everyone should read this book. I love it. You should read it. We should have coffee and discuss it. That would be great. But if you are unfamiliar with this, let me just give you the synopsis right here. This book seeks to uncover beauty and broken stories and demonstrate how God sees us fully exposed in our ugly shortcomings, yet of unimaginable value to him. This is how we should see others and how we should be willing to be seen by others, broken and of incalculable worth. There is beauty in the brokenness, and that's what this book seeks to uncover, because beauty matters. It's an amazing book. And even if you pay the price, it's discounted now, um, the first chapter is, is worth it enough because the author points us to this, this triad of truth, goodness, and beauty, what some have referred classically as the transcendentals. Basically, this is a way to communicate something about God without having the, the physical things that attach themselves. So when God created the cosmos, he did so communicating to his creation in these three ways, in truth and goodness and in beauty. However, sin has so fractured things that we often misuse or miss it all. Miss the truth, goodness, and beauty by separating them out or maligning them in combination with one another, pitting them against each other. Think about Genesis 1 and 2 if you're not convinced yet. So God creates everything orderly and according to its kind. An oak tree will produce oak trees. Penguins will produce penguins. Dolphins will produce dolphins. This is all orderly, and they all point back to a common creator to give them a specific function. That's truth. There's no your truth, their truth. This is just truth. After creating everything, God declares in Genesis 1.31, it's very good. Goodness. Beauty, however, has been the backdrop of this all. Think about wherever you go and the, the scenery captures your affection. If it's the mountains or the beach, if it's in a forest or in a field, a sunset, a sunrise. We look on these things and we're like, this is beautiful. It takes your breath away. You stop and you, and you bask in that. And friends, that's a... That scenery is from a world that is tainted by sin. And so if we can ascribe value and beauty to that, how much more in a sinless world would that have been? That's beauty. Beauty's the backdrop that goodness and truth flow from. And it works together cyclically, all communicating one another because God is not divided in his person. King David would pick up on this theme in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Beauty does a number of things. Beauty, primarily, God uses it to woo and to draw sinners. David, who had all the resources, 
could have bought whatever was declared to be beauty, but what he saw as most important is to dwell, to commune, to tabernacle with the creator of it all. And then from there to inquire of him, then to receive goodness and truth. But how we miss that oftentimes because we don't know what to do with beauty. We focus on, yeah, that's cool, but truth and goodness over here. Rob, why does this matter? Well, I think it matters because that is the essence of what Mark here is doing. When Mark removes the names and, and prescribes anonymity to the characters, what we're left with is the plot. And I think this is what he sets up, this, this truth, goodness, and beauty triad moving through this. Look back at verses 1 and 2 and what these religious leaders are talking about. This is truth and goodness without beauty. The religious leaders in the first two verses are concerned about their own ambitions and hijacking truth to get there. It is true that God instructed the temple to be the place where his people could gather to sacrifice, to be in his presence, to commune with others, but these men twist the truth for their own gain, for their own glory. And as we're told, God will not share his glory with another from Isaiah 42. So they twist truth for their own gain, and want to get rid of the man who God sent to tabernacle among us, to dwell with us. And then the rebuke that the disciples give to this woman, it's focused on goodness with some truth, but misses the beauty. And this is what happens here. The disciples, mainly Judas, are not wrong about the oil and the flask could be sold for a lot of money and given to the poor. That's a good thing. And Jesus says that. It's true, you can do that. However, when you read the parallel account in John, we kind of get a peek behind the curtain of some motives here. This is John 12, verses 5 and 6. This is a quote from Judas. He says in this event, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Here, goodness is masking his his sin, disguising his greed and motivation to steal. He doesn't care about truth. He cares about lining his own pocket and to steal glory. However, when we see the beauty of a sacrifice offered, it shows and reveals what's wrong. And that's a second function of beauty that is probably just a great grace of the Lord. That beauty will show us where we're wrong. It will reveal bias. It will reveal a heart's motive. You see, Mark is not, hasn't just done this this one time. He showed us a few weeks ago of the widow who offers the two copper coins in the temple. In comparison, added up to around a penny. But the beauty of her whole worship and ascribing the most value to Jesus, to God, she gave more than anyone else who, who made a big spectacle of it. You see, God sees the heart, and we may give a facade of truth and goodness, but he sees through it, ascribing beautiful or not. Um, this is what he does. And one of the most convicting examples from the Old Testament, you see God's people Israel who give sacrifices blameless animals without spots and they offer this to to Yahweh 
as a sacrifice to um, as sin offerings, as grain offerings, as all these different things. And it's really showy because it's in front of everyone, leading your animal up to show others what you do. But God, who sees the heart, speaks this word of rebuke in Amos 5. This is the Lord speaking. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Brothers and sisters, the worship that we offer to God, the measure in which we see God as holy is the measure in which we will offer to God that which is treasured to us. And if you think we have to give up a flask of oil for $40,000, let me paint you a different picture. If you're a parent in this room, you know the joy and excitement of your young child coming to you with a macaroni necklace. Just raw pasta, little piece of yarn put together, maybe, maybe some additives that they put in there, a bite taken out of it. To their siblings, to their friends, that looks like a piece of garbage. To you, the recipient, it's a diamond necklace. Because that kid could have created anything, could have done anything with the resources they were given, and instead, what they do is they create something and present it to the person who holds their affection. And we ascribe that value. It is beautiful. It's not the dollar amount, but it's the whole heart's devotion to the person, the recipient. Regardless of what other people may think, we ascribe the value to it. And it's the same way in what we offer to God. You see, we are broken people. We offer to God our broken lives as that macaroni necklace because we enter his presence covered by the blood of the lamb, the perfect sacrifice. And through Jesus, we're accepted. Through Jesus, we have access to just joyfully run to God and say, this, this is what I have for you. And he looks at our hearts and he says, yes, that's beautiful. And we, say, and we see that because this is what Mary has done. He says, she has done, in verse 8, she has done what she could. She anointed my body for burial. She didn't even know the significance of what she was doing. But he ascribes it eternal significance and says, when this story is told, when the gospel goes forward, this event, this heart of worship will continue to be concluded, will continue to go forward. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this can be said of us and our worship here corporately as a, as a one body, as the King's Church, that when we sing our songs, when we confess our sins before we take the Lord's Supper, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we stand assured of our pardon, that what that offers to God, he receives as acceptable because we're doing it because we know we're not worthy. We throw ourselves and lay ourselves bare, seeing Jesus, all we have is a necklace. He says, that's treasure. He owns everything. He doesn't need that, but he welcomes it. That's beauty. I'd love to end there, but we got two more verses which closed our sandwich here. This is Judas. 
the bankrupt betrayer. Let's read verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. I'm about to give you a hot take, the hottest of hot takes, and make a bold claim here. I think Judas is the only one in this story who actually understands what's happening. I, I would contend that Judas is the only one that actually knows Jesus is going to die. Jesus has said it time and time again. It should not be a surprise, but it is. His disciples don't get it. Mary, who does anoint him for burial, doesn't really understand that that's what's happening. It's more of she picked up on a sense of prompting of the Holy Spirit, similar to Lucy and Aslan in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, where they're walking together. He's walking to his death, and she just she feels something's off. And her response is to give him praise. And so in the same way here, I, I think there's significance to what Mary's doing, but I don't think she really gets it. But Judas does, because he's a thief. Because his heart is not wholly devoted to the Lord. And what he sees is because his role was to take care of the money bag and that he would help himself to it. If Jesus just rejected a $40,000 payout, something's awry. This well that he's been pulling from, it's about to go dry. So he plans his exit strategy. And anyone that sees their upside down on an investment, they're going to cut their losses and take what they can. So what does Judas do? He looks at the only, the only product he has to offer and to sell, and that's access to Jesus. He finds a buyer, the religious leaders who have been plotting at the beginning for their rage to silence him, to arrest him, and to kill him. And he goes and he brokers a deal. And he says, I have what you need. What's it worth to you? The parallel accounts in the other gospels say it's 30 pieces of silver. Now, I did a number of searches trying to figure out the value of what 30 pieces of silver to compare it to the $40,000, presumably, of, of the oil. But the best I could see is like it's a couple hundred bucks. But what I found instead, I think, is more significant. This exact price is actually prescribed in Deuteronomy 21.32 as the price that a person would pay if his ox got out and gored a male or female slave of another. They would pay 30 pieces of silver as compensation. To the religious leaders and to Judas, all Jesus is worth is the price of a slave. The worth and value that this man this person who's getting ready to lay down his life. 30 pieces of silver. Let's not, let's not try to wage our bets, to hedge our bets. Let's not sell Jesus out for a moment of pleasure, for a vain pursuit, for self-glory. He's worth so much more than that. So I started my message with a question about spending a seriously, just silly amount of money on. So much so that people would think you're ridiculous. Let's, let's turn that just a bit. What would you offer to Jesus that people would think you're being foolish? Maybe ridiculous. Or if I may, a little reckless. What is that?
What if you gave up a couple hours of your week? Said no to a couple hobbies, and instead you met in the home of someone sitting in this room, shared a simple meal, opened up the scriptures, and you talked about them. To grow in what it means to how the gospel impacts our lives. To grow in your gospel fluency. To stumble through it. To make mistakes. What if you gave your time in that way? What if, hear me, you set up for dinner a couple extra chairs around your table? And what if you looked around here and it's like, hey, I don't know you. We've probably been going to church for several months together. I've never introduced myself, but you should come over to my house today. We've already made room. Or what if you looked at the crazy neighbor that no one likes to talk to, the one that you pull out your phone and pretend you're talking on it or texting to hurry up and get away? He invited that guy over. People would think that's a little weird. Why would you do that? Now, again, this doesn't have to... Think macaroni necklace here, folks. This is just pizza. Pizza can go a long way. There's nutritional value there. You put some veggies on it. Maybe throw a little salad. Some strawberries. They're BOGO right now at Publix. There's, there's, it's one of our core values. Just finding beauty in the ordinary. Simple meals shared with simple people have eternal significance. What if you look around the room and you find someone older than you. You hear their story. Ask them their story. How'd you come to know Jesus? And you see, you know what? They're further along than me. Hey, can I take you out to coffee and you just tell me what it looks like to follow Jesus for 20 years, 15 years, 40 years? And then what if you did that with someone younger than you? Hey, come with me. Let me tell you what Jesus has done. There's a pattern for that in the scripture. What if you decided that extra room in your house, you could put a bed in. Or maybe you could move some of your kids to share a room and you opened up a room for one of the 18, one of the 1,800 and counting foster kids in this community. That's weird. That will get some looks. That's beauty. What if you decided that the Lord has blessed you with business savvy? You're just good at making money. What you do, the Lord just blesses. That's not a bad thing. But what if you chose open-handedly to offer that to God and say, I don't, you've given me this, I don't know what to do. It's still a macaroni necklace. It may be green-wise macaroni or it may be Publix, but Lord, just <laughs> turn this into baked ziti, something. What if you just lived open-handedly, lived below your means so that when someone says, hey, here's a need, you're like, I got you. Now, friends, I've seen that. I've seen that here. just want to continue to encourage you in that. Whatever the degree in which the Lord has blessed you, whatever time, talents, resources, we just turn that over and we offer it to God. That's one of the coolest things about being in the kingdom, that we've been called to be generous with whatever he's given us. To be good stewards, better tenants than the wicked ones of the parable from a few weeks ago. And we offer that to Jesus because we've been accepted. And he takes that and he multiplies those efforts. So today, conversations on the ride home, over lunch, talk about it together. Pray about it with your roommates. Talk about it at 
the lunch table, wherever that is. Come talk to me. Let's brainstorm. Let's figure this out. But let me leave you with this quote from J.C. Ryle, and then I'll pray. If a man understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will fear wasting time, talents, money, affections on the things of this world. He will not be afraid of wasting them on his Savior. He will fear going into extremes about his business, money, politics, or pleasure, but he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, you're worthy. Have mercy on us, for we are sinners. But God, in your love, you take our meager and you you turn it into abundance. God, for myself, for the people here at the King's Church, I pray that we would offer to you all of our brokenness, all of the abilities, the talents, and the time that you have given us, and that you would use them for us to see a greater worship of your son Jesus in our community, in our state, our country, and to the ends of the earth. God, help us see that you redeem it all and something we ascribe little value to. You multiply. So God, do this now as we offer worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.